I often tell you in my sermons that I often see my sins along the lines of the religious people and the Pharisees in the scriptures. And that is, often I have a tendency to maybe get proud and self-righteous, while on the inside I start to grow very aware of my sins. So I start playing the religious game and say, well, the less sins I commit, maybe the more God will love me. Or if I can't handle my sins, then why? maybe God is done with me. So there's a torment that goes on there. There's the fault of the sin of religion, the sin of religion that leads to pride. I'm awesome and I keep the rules. Or to despair, I fail and I don't keep the rules. Mary, singing of Jesus in Luke 1.52, she says... He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And I think I often look at verses like that and I see two groupings of people. On one side, we, we got mighty people being brought down from their thrones. And on the other hand, we see those of humble estate, perhaps a separate group of people exalted. And it hit me this week, the story of Saul of Tarsus. Here was a man of prestige and honor and religiosity. Like I have, and God brought him down from his little throne and moved him to humility and exalted him by working through him the most important work for the early church, I should say. The same person fulfilling what's pointed out in this verse. That gives me hope that there's a guy like me. But then I received another slap in the face this week in this text where I see Jesus is stating that God is literally moving heaven and earth to save his people. That that's how deep and furious and zealous and particular is God's love for his people, that he intercedes human history to save them. In more ways than once at the cross of Christ, and in more ways quantity-wise than at the cross, Jesus gives us a promise that God is going to save his people amid horrific tribulation. Friends, that is God's love for his people. If you are saved in Christ, that it is his love for you. Do you need that today? God above intervenes in human history because of his affections for his people. Join with me in Mark 13. Please stand as we read this together. Mark 13, verses 14 through 23. Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. And for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Father, I don't want to come to this text as if it's just another day to look at your scriptures and figure out what you're saying. There are much bigger things happening here. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Father, get through hard hearts and soften them. Make hearts of flesh. Mine most of all. And Father, I pray that you would bring us closer to you, that we might love you more, do more what you tell us to do, enjoy you more, adore you more, thank you more. Father, have your ways, have your way in our hearts. Get me out of the way and say what you would desire, and may you give us hearts to receive your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Acting on an anonymous phone call, the police raid a house to arrest a suspected murderer. They don't know what he looks like. Meanwhile, the only two things that they do know is that his name is John, not you, John, but John, and that he's inside the house. The police bust in on a construction worker, a truck driver, a mechanic, and a fireman, and they're all playing poker. Without hesitation or communication of any kind, they immediately arrest the fireman. How do they know that they've got their man? The fireman is the only man in the room. The rest of the poker players are women. What this story illustrated, for those of you who may have not figured this out, is that the fact that this story exploited your preconceptions of men and jobs that men usually have, or even an activity like poker usually practiced by men. You didn't expect women to be in those job positions or playing poker. But let me, let me submit to you that the obvious biggest hindrance to that answer and why you may have not gotten it is that you were not there. <laughs> and so it's safe to say that our culture really played into the interpretation of that story for you. Likewise, if you've been here for any of our sermons in Mark 13, you know by now that I'm taking a particular interpretation to this chapter that is shared by many throughout church history, but it is not the popular view right now. And the popular view being Mark 13, many see that that is a future from us fulfillment. However, I personally note four verses that in Mark 13, A, Jesus predicts the fall of the temple, which happened, history tells us, in 70 A.D. B, we note that Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask Jesus when the destruction of the temple will happen, because for all of them, it's likely 33 A.D. in that passage. Jesus begins to answer them, and then we get a third, what I call time parameter statement, near the end of Mark 13 and verse 30, which I've been calling our key verse as we study this chapter, in which Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I take that verse at plain value. I believe Jesus is saying that his contemporary generation of he and his disciples 
will not die out until everything he talks about in this prophecy takes place. So then let's tackle our first verse today. But when the abomination of desolation standing, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I could be wrong, but I think some of you, if not most of you, might read this and cannot help but interpret this from the outside looking in. See, you and I have cultural depictions, sensationalized depictions, and, and pastors who play prophets to tell us who this abomination of desolation is, and he's a future figure. The interesting thing is, is that for Peter, James, John, and Andrew, as they hear Jesus' prophecy, as prophecy, and again, they ask Jesus, verse 4, when the temple would fall, Jesus' words here, abomination of desolation, would put in the minds, put in the disciples' minds a picture of a past event, for them even, not a future one. Uh, it would be like if you were listening to prophecy now, and, somebody, and that prophet said, and when Benedict Arnold reveals himself, <laughs> instantly we would get this picture of a past event because we understand Benedict Arnold is an infamous past traitor to America, but that prophecy would be giving us a word picture of who to look for in the future. The abomination of desolation for Peter, James, John, and Andrew was a prophecy the Old Testament prophet Daniel mentioned about 600 years before. And then furthermore, Jews saw the abomination of desolation as fulfilled already about 150 years prior to the time of Jesus. First, let's look at Daniel. Daniel 9.27 says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel continues in Daniel 11.31, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall sh set up the abomination that makes desolate. Daniel is talking about a figure who is going to profane the temple. Again, he's prophesying about this roughly in the late 500s. If you're familiar with a term called the Apocrypha, these are books that Catholics have in their Bibles, and most Protestants consider maybe they're not inspired, but they're still helpful, however that works. But this is a, there is a book called the Book of the Maccabees. First Maccabees 1, talking about history, says, After Alexander, son of Philip, the Macedonian, who came from the land of Kittim, had defeated King Darius, the Persians, and the Medes, and succeeded him as king. He had previously become king of Greece. Some of you hopefully know your Old Testament history. So we had Israel with David and Solomon. After Solomon, Israel breaks into two kingdoms. Eventually, both kingdoms are taking, taken over by separate enemies. This is just a picture. I did not do my research and say, oh, that's Assyria's borders. I don't know what Assyria's borders. But So you get the picture. Assyria took over the northern kingdom. By the book of Daniel, the southern kingdom, called Judah, was conquered by Babylonians and then taken into exile. Follow me. Babylon is taken over eventually by the Persians. 
And the Persians are nicer. They send those Jews who wish to go back to Israel to go there. Then 1 Maccabees 1 told us that Greece comes through and just takes over everything. And they took over the Persians. So now Israel has been a defeated people owned by Babylon, Persia, and now Greece. Furthermore, 1 Maccabees 1 would continue... And after Alexander had reigned 12 years, he died. Then his officers began to rule each in his own place. They all put on crowns after his death, and so did their descendants after them for many years. And they caused many evils on the earth. And then came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome. He began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom Greeks of the Greeks. Follow me about this guy. First Maccabees goes on to tell us he went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and he basically just started profaning everything. It was Babylon's invasion all over again. He steals a bunch of things. He returns to his own land. Furthermore, this king reverses the religious liberties had under the Persians and he tells everyone in his empire to worship the same way. Verse 41 says, Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people, and that all should give up their particular customs. And as you read 1 Maccabees 1, he's very specific. (laughs) He's telling basically everyone to do anything and everything that would violate any Jew's faith, conscience, or practice. This king even sent inspectors to Jewish towns to make sure they weren't practicing their Jewish religion. This was a rotten king with his hands and everything. The first chapter of 1 Maccabees ends with this climax. It says, so they erected a desolating sacrilege, that's the phrase, abomination of desolation, on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. It gets worse. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar, the burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them. And they hung the infants from their mother's necks. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the Holy Covenant, and they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. What's happening here is that Antiochus Epiphanes is erecting an altar to Zeus on the altar of the burnt offering in the temple, and he sacrifices a pig on it. I don't think you and I can experience the weighty gravity of disdain or offense taken for the common Jew. (laughs) Because for the Jew, the temple was everything. You and I know that God resides in human hearts. Granted, we might be a little offended, say, if Muslims came in here, took down the cross, ripped out the pews, and put down prayer mats and had public reading of the Koran. But, you know, you and I could go next door and practice church. (laughs) For the Jews, the temple was the meeting place of God, and the king had done something profoundly, intensely offensive. Jesus brings up this episode from the past, and he says to his listeners that something like that is going to happen for them in the future. So did it. 
As for a fulfillment in 70 AD, there are about seven possibilities that one of my commentaries gave. I'll just address the one that I think is most likely. Josephus writes about the war in 70 AD, and he says, And now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, and of all the buildings lying round about it, brought their incense to the temple and set them over against its eastern gate, and there did they offer sacrifices to them, and there did they make Tempest, or Titus Imperator with the greatest acclamations of joy. Here is Emperor Titus in 70 AD on the wing of, a temp, on the wing of the temple. And the Romans are, the Romans are there mocking the temple and making sacrifices to Titus, not to God. I think the idea of Titus being the abomination of desolation is only solidified when we look over to Luke's Olivet Discourse. See, Luke does not record, as Mark does, Jesus saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, but in fact, in the same sequence of verses where Mark puts that phrase, Luke puts the phrase, but when you see Jerusalem sound, surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. So obviously I'm not the only one who considers Titus the abomination of desolation. As early as 4th century A.D., there was a church father named Eusebius, who that's what he calls Titus, that's the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. So we move on. Jesus says in Mark, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then it seems Mark makes an editorial note in parentheses, let the reader understand, now, I feel like lots of commentators and scholars lose sleep over this statement, trying to decide its exact meaning. And I think this is Mark's way of saying, remember Antiochus Epiphanes, remember that fulfillment, well, this will be like it. So Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And about that fleeing, Jesus adds, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Let's just take this out face value. Jesus is saying, get out of town. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's August 2015, fires surrounding Woodland on all sides. Thank God for his provision. Thank God for his protection. Thank God for the people that spared this hill. But had it gotten worse, there would have come a time when it was later than it's ever been. And no one outside observing the fire would have time or should take time to go back to their house, rather just get in their car and leave. If anyone had been out in their shop working and not fighting fire, or farming and not fighting fire, they wouldn't have time to gather their belongings. They should have just left. That is what Jesus is saying. In that culture, the top of the house was a walkable roof. It had a stairwell down the side to the ground. Jesus was saying, don't go into your house. Don't be tempted to take any belongings. Just flee and flee now. Jesus is also saying pregnant women and Babies who need to be nursed. That would be a drastic inconvenience. <laughs> Can you imagine that if you had not seen the other signs and wonders, if you hadn't gotten out of Jerusalem yet, but there's Titus, there's the armies around Jerusalem, and you're trying to leave Jerusalem, but you have a pregnant wife, you have a newborn. There's no such thing as cars and car seats or minivans for all the stuff for the baby. I 
speaking from experience now, but <laughs> you wouldn't want to get on an animal because you might get spotted, a Roman might find you. If you have the ability to get out of Jerusalem, you better sneak out unnoticed without lots of things. This is also why Jesus said, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. I looked it up, I believe Titus's incident happened in September. Next, Jesus says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. This verse, coupled with Revelation 7.14, is where the term great tribulation comes from. I want you to note a subtle difference between a prophecy of Daniel about this event and the prophecy of Jesus. Daniel notes in Daniel 12, verse 1, And at that time there shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation, till that time. Until that time. Jesus says, For in those days there will be such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. You see the present tense that Jesus used there. The future from Daniel, I believe, has arrived. Now, some people think great tribulation. <laughs> and because Jesus makes this description that this tribulation will be unrivaled in history, past or future, some people will say that Jesus must mean the end of the world for what could be more disastrous, catastrophic or traumatic but the end of the world. And I want you to see that Jesus' words, namely his description, such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be, is actually somewhat common language used in judgment and prophecy. Consider the plagues of Egypt. We all know our plagues of Egypt. Moses goes, let my people go. Pharaoh, no. Ten plagues happen. God said in Exodus 9, verse 18, he says, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Hmm. About the plague of locusts, uh, Moses, writing the book, uh, records, the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. Do you see the similar language there? What am I saying, that I believe more horrific hail has fallen on Egypt? prior to what God said, or, or that there has been more swarms of locusts since that plague? No. <laughs> I'm saying that it's possible for a great tribulation to happen in 70 A.D., and even so a tribulation in 70 A.D., unrivaled before or after it took place, and it not be the end of the world. <laughs> and the fact that Jesus says such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and then notice he says, and never will be, tells me that Jesus sees the world continuing after the tribulation that he's referring to. And so, secondly, some might want to play judge and say, well, I don't know. Was 70 A.D. the great tribulation? And if it was, you'd think I would have heard about it. And, like that, I would say, A, 70 A.D. was a long time ago. It's not necessarily going to be on the news channels right now. B, I would say, I would take a phrase from C.S. Lewis and say, let's not be chronological snobs. Supposing that a war of antiquity could not measure up to a war now using nuclear bombs and mass population fatality, 
C, I would say Jesus is probably the better judge of what constitutes a great tribulation. And D, I would say this is prophetic. <laughs> and prophetic language is often poetic. Give you a few examples. God is judging Babylon in Isaiah 13. Look at what God says. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Do you suppose the stars literally stopped showing their light? Could it have been clouds over the stars? Do you suppose that God literally judged the entire world for its evil at that moment? I thought he was judging Babylon. <laughs> I mean, a worldwide flood already happened. God promised to never wipe out the world in the flood again. Or is it that God is just speaking prophetically in cataclysmic imagery? Consider in Isaiah 34, a prophecy against all the nations. God says, for the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. If all that happened in a literal way as I read it, I don't think we'd be here. <laughs> The host of heaven, all the stars, including our sun and moon, rotting away. And if the stars fell like leaves do from a vine, what's my point? My point is that Old Testament prophecy is full of imagery, suggesting cataclysmic judgments that are poetic. To see these prophecies and rest in the fact, knowing that they have come to pass, which many believe they have. And lo and behold, we still see stars and sun and moon. We know that God's judgment and prophecies were to be heeded. He is very serious. He's talking about the severity of sin. Jesus, while speaking about the great tribulation, why is it that we would demand that we take every word literally, obviously spoken in the Old Testament poetically? Who put the literal rule on there? A person who's not familiar with Old Testament prophecy, I would guess, but I don't know. I see precedents in God's judgments and prophecies in places like Isaiah that can be poetic, again, to illustrate the seriousness of his judgment. So it could be when Jesus speaks of great tribulation. And even still, it could be that no other tribulation to ever hit planet Earth will ever match up with 70 AD. So why is it great? Why will there be nothing like it? Consider this one thought that I have. Again, the temple is for the Jews and is for the people of God, the dwelling place of God, the presence of God, the everything of God. As you read old books, you will see 2TP, Second Temple Period, referring to the Jews in that time. Because for the Jews in that time, worship revolved around the temple. The temple was the sum, the seat, the center, the totality, the dwelling place of worship. It was the proverbial sun in God's people, universe. And so for the temple to fall, it would be for God's people a decisive end and a great end to one age and the beginning of another. Don't hear me wrong. That age begins with Jesus and his work on the cross. 
But as for the why of the tribulation is great, that's my thought. It's the falling of the temple. It's a decisive blow to something God has set up in the past and he had to wreck when the people misused it. And that thought or belief about its destruction being unparalleled in history, I believe, matches up with the story of Mark that, has, that Mark has been telling. So in brief review, Jesus says, Great tribulation is coming unlike that ever has been or ever will be. We take into essence Mark 13, 1-4 and verse 30. It happened when the temple was destroyed. Josephus writes about the war in 70 AD. He says, That neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries. Nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. And he also says, Now this destruction that fell upon the Jews, as it was not inferior to any of the rest in itself, so did it still appear greater than it really was. And this, because not only the whole of the country through which they had fled was filled with slaughter, and Jordan could not be passed over by reason of the dead bodies that were in it, but because the Dead Sea was also full of dead bodies that were carried out down into by the river. I don't know about you, but that sounds horrible. Which is why I find great comfort in Jesus' next statement. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Jesus, interestingly here, speaks in a past tense about a future situation. He says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, the, the cutting short there, the same word you'd use for maiming, mutilating, amputating. <laughs> the point being, Jesus is saying, if left to the sinful intentions and passions of the human hearts, the tribulation in question would lead to what Jesus seems to imply, a fatality of the human race. He says, no human being would be saved if God had not decreed the time or shortening of that tribulation, but God had in ages past. How did God do that? How did God intervene and shorten the days? Let's read the remainder of our text today and see if that clues us in. Verse 21, And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. I think that last verse might help us to discern how God has shortened the days for the sake of the elect. First of all, let's look at verses 21 through 22. I, I take that firstly as both a repeat and expounding of what Mark says earlier, verses 5 through 6, in which Jesus said, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. I mentioned two weeks ago many who had come. I gave you some general descriptions of people who did do signs and wonders. I won't cover that again, but put some of those names on your outlines if you weren't here. But I see verses 20 and 23 connected. And that God is shortening the tribulation that he's describing using Jesus' words. The words that he has told everyone beforehand, before this tribulation took place. Again, the, the book of Mark... As Mark is writing this book down, it's going into the hands of Romans, the center of the world at that time, if you will. 
And the reason believed that Mark is writing this book is that he's writing to Christians in the first church who are under persecution from Nero. And he wants to show those Christians that Jesus in his first church experienced persecution too. Nevertheless, Jesus calls all his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. And in this time frame that Mark is writing, it's believed to be anywhere from the mid-50s to the mid-60s, extremely close to the war that broke out in 66 AD, which would culminate in Jerusalem and the fall of the temple in 70 AD. So how did God shorten the days? He showed up in the flesh as Jesus and told them beforehand. <laughs> Eusebius, 4th century prophet, or prophet, church father, the same one who cites what Titus did at the temple as what he perceives to be the abomination of desolation, he says that Christians in Jerusalem around 69 A.D. left Jerusalem and headed about 40 to 50 miles north of Jerusalem to a city called Pella, founded by a church. Why did these Christians leave Jerusalem? It could have been that because Jesus told them beforehand. It could have been that the people that Jesus talked to told them, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. It could have been that they just simply saw the writing on the wall in Jerusalem and left because of that. Whatever it was, I have to believe because God saved them. Friends, I want to tell you today that whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, God is living and active and has saved you through Jesus, is saving you through Jesus and His Holy Spirit. Friends, as I was thinking about how to get this point across, there were a few passages of Scripture I could refer to, but I felt really directed to a actually somewhat hard-to-understand passage in 2 Timothy 2. In it, Paul is describing his suffering in chains for declaring God's name. He's likely near the end of his life, but even in his suffering, listen to what Paul says. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul mentions that word again, the elect, and he's, he's saying in a broader context, I am here suffering, but I'm preaching the word and I'm writing these letters because no matter what I'm doing, I am do it for the sake of the elect. I do it so that those who are to accept God will accept him. I do it so that the gospel can get out to all hearers. Why would Paul do that? Paul brings up an interesting saying, follow with me, he says, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. In other words, if we have been baptized into Jesus' death, we will be raised to live with Christ and to reflect Christ. Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. This is what Jesus has been commanding his disciples. Persecution is coming. Tribulation is coming. Don't back down, but endure. Remain loyal to me. Remain allegiant, says Jesus. Paul continues, if we deny him. He also will deny us. If we get to the point of denying Christ, and if we say, He's not my Savior, He's not the Son of God, then God will deny us. But look at this last verse, an interesting part. At first glance, it seems to contradict what Paul has just said. He says, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Paul sees a difference between faithless and denial. Greek words there, faithless is just disbelieve or refuse to be persuaded, but denial is more of an active refusal, a disowning. 
And here's what I believe Paul is saying in differentiating. See, Paul could be talking about himself, himself in some ways. He could be saying, here I am in prison, wondering if God has abandoned me. I've wondered if I've done his will, if I'm being punished. For the Christians in 70 AD, Jerusalem is being ransacked, the temple is being destroyed, there are bodies in the rivers and lakes. I wonder if God even sees us or knows what's happening. Or here's where I make it my own. Sometimes I doubt God's love for me. Sometimes I doubt God having saved me or is saving me. Sometimes I wonder if my faith is active or dormant. And Paul is saying, if we are faithless, if we have weak faith, God remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Friends, when he sees you and me, he sees Jesus, if we've accepted Jesus. And God cannot, will not, look at us who are in Christ and respond to us in anything but love. Solid, thick, unconditional, unyielding, furious, jealous love. Back in Mark 13, Jesus is giving this prophecy, I believe about 70 A.D., and Jesus is saying, God Almighty is intervening intervening in human history for the sake of his elect. He's going to spare those whom he loves and loves him back in that time, but quite more relevant to this week that we are looking at where Jesus is giving this prophecy. God himself in the flesh is intervening in human history, heading to the cross to do what? To save those whom he loves and those who love him back. To be the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. To save Peter who denies him. To save many of the twelve who desert him. To save Paul who will persecute him before he loves him. To save me, the religious guy who sometimes feels faithless because he is faithful. Friends, God moves heaven and earth to save those whom he loves over and over again. He did it in Egypt for his people. He did it in Jerusalem for his people. And he's doing it today. God remains faithful even when we are faithless. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I look at this text and I feel like the dad who came up to you and asked you to heal my child. And Jesus, you said, for anyone who believes anything is possible, that dad responded, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, that's where many of us are at. Sometimes we want to look around the world, we think it's closing in on us, we think we've done something wrong against you, maybe we have, maybe we have not. But your truth remains that if we have accepted Jesus, truly accepted him as Lord and Savior, not just Savior, you look at us and remain faithful, even when we are faithless. Father, that doesn't mean we have a license to sin. That doesn't mean we have freedom to sin. It means that you understand our frailty. You understand our humanity. It means that you are constantly beckoning us to pick ourselves up and come to you. Father, would you send us away this day with that truth in our hearts and our minds that we would live it out that we would allow it to affect our lives that you would translate that little nugget of theology into our biography that we would live in light of this truth we pray these things in the name of Jesus our Lord, Savior, Christ and King
Amen.